0: go Holiday
1: leave your and move and
0: 1974. You are celebrating, your cousin's wedding, the music is too loud, all you can think about is the crystal chandelier hanging from the ceiling. You swear, you see it move, you walk over to the window, it's the 22nd floor, from here you can see every little corner of Beirut from its high-end boutiques, its theatres, its cinemas to its nightlife. Scene. Holiday in Beirut, 1975. You are in the same ballroom. The sound of gunshots is too loud. All you can think about is the crystal chandelier hanging from the ceiling and its safety implications. You walk over to what used to be a window, now a missile-sized gaping hole in the side of a wall. It's the 22nd floor. From here, you can see every little corner of Beirut or what remains of it. You can dissect the deserted streets and bullet-ridden walls. This is what a city turned war zone looks like. We've just listened in on the happenings in the Holiday Inn in Beirut, Lebanon. The first scene goes back to 1974, a little after the opening of the Holiday Inn, and the second takes you to 1975, a scene from the Hotel Wars, a part of the Lebanese Civil War. Today, we'll be going on a trip from 1975 to 1990, from West Beirut to the little village of Kfar We'll be talking about Lebanon, the sectarian nature of its politics, its intercommunalism, and what led those who had once been neighbors to armed conflict. Here with us today is Professor Caroline Nagel herself to discuss the underlying conflicts that led to the war.
1: My name is Caroline Nagel. I'm a professor of geography at the University of South Carolina. During the Lebanese Civil War, it was sort of a carryover of some of these ideological struggles that were going on earlier, starting uh, around the time of the the First World War, when I think you had, uh, you know, a more Arabist perspective. You know, I mean, there there were sort of competing national ideologies going on. You know, some people were more oriented toward linking themselves with a broader Arab struggle for Arab liberation, not only from the Ottomans, but also from the Europeans. And, you know, as you mark... Through the 20th century, that Arab ideology and Arab nationalism, pan-Arabism, becomes quite pronounced and quite strong in the 1950s and 1960s. I think that, for uh, particularly for the Maronite Christians, who had much more aligned themselves with with Western, really with, with Western colonial rulers, uh, with France in particular this sort of arabist nationalism and arab struggle was seen as really um, sort of infringing or impinging on the essential christian identity of uh, of lebanon and drawing lebanon into conflicts within the wider arab world that threatened threatened sort of the, the christian basis or what they believed to be the christian basis of of lebanon so you know i think the civil war it's not to say that it was fought Purely between Arab nationalists and between more sort of Christian Lebanese nationalists. One looking more toward the kind of Arab socialist model and the other looking more toward Western capitalism. That was part of it. But, you know, there were a lot of local struggles for local hegemony and local political power that got tied up with this wider struggle.
0: So part of the conflict was the socialist Arab versus Western capitalism issue. But there was also a socio-political structure set in place following the National Pact 1943, whereby your position in politics was determined by a religious sect, such that the president had to be Maronite Christian, the prime minister, Sunni Muslim, etc.
1: That National Pact didn't help. <laughs> it basically took what had already been evolving as a sectarian political system that started in the, in the 1840s and was really solidified in the 1860s it took that and just set it in stone, almost. I mean, it. Even though my understanding is that the National Pact was was unwritten, but it it, it took what had already been an increasingly sectarianized system, and it, and it just solidified it. It made it, I think, difficult for the Lebanese to think of themselves as anything other than being part of a sectarian group. It made a whole system of representation and political spoils and patronage based on sectarian, uh, like a sectarian elite. So it kind of put this into motion. It tied people's well-being to their connection to certain sectarian groups. You know, the idea is that if people cannot think of themselves as belonging to a single nation state and sort of imagine themselves as a, as a single national community, and, and as long as the political spoils and political representation are divided along these sectarian lines, then you're always going to have uh, kind of a recipe there for, uh, for further conflict.
0: But these tensions... The sociopolitical structure set in place following the National Pact 1943, the patronage system set in place partially by the French that led to the financial discrepancies and the large inequality between these different sects, these had existed since the beginning of the conception of Lebanon. So what was it that set off the spark?
1: In 1948, there had been a movement of refugees from Palestine into Lebanon. The position of the Lebanese state and especially the Lebanese Christians was actually to support Palestine's liberation because the majority of the Palestinians who came into Lebanon were Muslim and the Christians were, you know, reluctant to have a a larger Muslim population in in Lebanon because it had always envisioned Lebanon as as an essentially Christian country. So they supported, you know, the Palestinians in their liberation struggle. But I think that a lot of those tensions had been going on for decades. You know, I think that there was enough of a, of a more kind of secular middle class in the country that allowed for some of those tensions to dissipate or to be papered over. But I think that those tensions had always been there. But a, a lot of it was the Palestinian issue that caused those tensions to rise to the surface, I think that it put a lot of strain on intercommunal relationships that were already strained or that had been strained. You had always had a conflict in, in the way that people had identified themselves and how they had understood the identity of the country and the nature of the country. So that when you had an, an, sort of an, uh, a quote-unquote outside armed group coming in with some Lebanese supporting that group and others viewing them as an existential threat to Lebanon as a Christian state. It was sort of bound to lead to conflict.
0: So on a lovely day in April, a group of Christian phalangists decided to do something about it. This massacre was the moment that sparked 14 years of sectarian strife. <laughs> Scene. April thirteenth, 1975, Heine Rukmaning. A group of Palestinian refugees were on a bus in Nehemi Rumani. The name means Eye of the Pomegranate. This beautiful little village in the mountain of Lebanon. The air, like on any spring day, had a lightness to it. The bus was hot, but not hot enough to bother anyone. Someone opens the window, and the wind carries in the scent of recently bloomed jasmines. It is reminiscent of another life, another home back in Haifa. Maybe back home the jasmines have bloomed, maybe there's someone left to pick the olives. All of a sudden, the bus stops, the music is lowered, the bus driver mumbles to himself.
1: And
0: so the games began. This was a war that went on for over 14 years, over the entirety of Lebanon with infinite little battles fought and massacres conducted. The Romani incident led parties like the Progressive Socialist Party along with Amal and others to side with the Palestinians. Do remember, however, that in Lebanon, your politics are never based purely on your politics. Your politics correlate with your religious sect, your economic status, etc. So yes, there were those who took up arms after the incident because they identified with the Palestinian struggle and refused to witness the injustice that had been done. But there were also those who were just tired of Maronite political and financial power and wanted a system that would cater better to their needs.
1: The conflict, you know, quickly became not one just of, you know, it certainly wasn't just a, a Muslim versus Christian or a Druze versus Christian or anything like that. Very quickly Christians were fighting Christians and Shiites were fighting Shiites and everybody was fighting each other. So. It devolved very quickly. It was not a purely, the, the, there were not clear divisions between these groups. But certainly there were political parties and political interests that were very sectarian in character.
0: So, yes, the Christian phalangists started the war off with the massacre of Palestinian refugees. But they are not the only ones to blame. The Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Lebanese National Movement, Amal, and I can go on. Each took part, each party hosting different massacres. But let's stop for a minute. Let's get on our own little bus to a village a little further away from Ain o Let's go to a village in Mount Lebanon, where we can witness a family pack their bags for a summer trip. Scene, 1983, Kfarnabrach Sherbil, a young boy of eight, is helping his parents pack. He thinks they're going on a trip for the summer. But why did mother say we weren't coming back? the PSP had taken over the village. He didn't really know what that meant, but he figured it wasn't great news. Though Muhammad from next door disagreed, he didn't get why Muhammad didn't have to go on this trip. In fact, only the kids he saw at church on Sundays were going. Two soldiers show up at the door, one a PLO fighter, the other a member of the PSP. In 1983, most of the PLO had already fled from Lebanon because of Israeli occupation. Very few remained. The very few that remained fought alongside the PSP. See, the world really does have a cruel way with irony. In this village in the mountains in the Shouf region, you had Palestinians with keys to their homes back in Haifa still wrapped around their necks, fighting alongside the LNM to pass the displacement onto the Christians. Sherbil's father mumbles to his
1: wife. <laughs>
0: Some of the Christians thought they were coming back in a few days. They too kept their keys wrapped around their necks. But it wasn't a few days. It was years before anyone returned. There are those who to this day still haven't returned. Scene 1992, Kfar Sherbil is now 17. He is helping his mother into their house for the first time in almost a decade. He walks in. The place has been looted empty. There are bullet holes in the walls. He thinks back to the last time they were here, when this was home, and his father was still with them. See, halfway through their summer trip, his father was kidnapped. He, along with more than 17,000 others, are still missing today. How was he to start a new life when his father was missing? How was he to forgive and forget when he lived next door to the man who was supposedly responsible? See, when his father was kidnapped, he was told it was the Palestinians, the Druze, the Sunnis. It varied depending on who was telling the story. Funny how history always varies depending on who's telling the story. But see, that's especially true in Lebanon, because Lebanon lacks a state-sponsored memory, or an adequate state-sponsored memory. To further discuss the conflict, here with us today is Dr. Sune, author of War and Memory in Lebanon.
2: Well, I think there is a state sponsored narrative, but it doesn't really reflect reality very well. The state sponsored narrative is one of victimization, that everyone was a, a victim of, of this war and, and everyone was sort of equally guilty. Addressing what really happened also would force people in the state or in the population to address culpability and war crimes committed. And so, obviously as long as the state is run by representatives of these movements it's it's impossible that the state should represent any real uh, meaningful discussion of these events the thorny issues of war memory have to do with the fact that lebanese killed lebanese as well as you know the reality of this being a, a proxy conflict which is of course completely true i mean the war of others it does reflect part of the reality of what happened but there's another part and that other part is the really. Difficult one to deal with.
0: So it appears the Lebanese refuse to remember because of different reasons. Some say it's the state's attempt at self legitimation. Some say there is just too much at stake in remembering.
1: I think it's all of those things. I, you know, I think it's it's all those things that you mentioned. And one, one thing that I would add to that, and and what kind of allows different memory cultures to perpetuate themselves is is when you think about the, the school system and the education system, you know, you've got very different education systems operating simultaneously, you know, private schools, many of them religious-based, state schools that are very different from the private schools. And it's very difficult to, you know, or almost impossible to kind of get everybody reading the same history. You know, the history itself is so contentious that you can't even have a standard, you know, textbook describing what happened. And the Civil War didn't really solve some fundamental problems with the political structure of the the country. And a lot of the people who were involved in the Civil War and in committing atrocities during the Civil War remain in place or (laughs) they became part of the post-Civil War government. So how can you embark on any kind of truth and reconciliation system when these people are still in government, they're still in power. So I think that it was almost impossible after the Civil War, despite the efforts of some groups, um, to to try to remember. uh, There was an organization, I remember meeting a couple of activists who were working on trying to well, quite literally dig up the truth, for the thousands of people who disappeared during the Civil War. And their bodies were never found, they were never found. And there are various rumors about where people were buried and bodies were dumped. And there was a sort of an ongoing, like a sit-in almost, a, a movement in the downtown area with this group, trying to draw attention to the fact that their family members had never returned, that they were undoubtedly dead and undoubtedly buried somewhere. And there was no political will, really, to to try to understand what happened, because there were people in the government and people who still had power in their their communities who were culpable. I think it's just it's still so politically contentious. It's so difficult. And people just have different narratives about what really happened. And and I think that in some ways it's easier to kind of paper over that you know, in the interest of, of trying to maintain peace, of, uh, of, of just trying to pretend that some of that stuff isn't there and that it didn't happen. So I think there's a lot at stake in remembering it, and, and people just prefer not to go there.
0: The Holiday Inn, like an unwilling witness, still stands in the streets of Beirut today. It is home to underground parties where the Druze dance alongside the Sunnah, the Shia, the Maronites, where the Lebanese dance alongside the Lebanese. But we must remember, the Lebanese dance today where they fought yesterday. And in the words of Tom Fletcher, the transition from the Civil War generation lies ahead and will be tough. You can't just party and pray over the cracks. So here we are. The holiday inn still stands, the sociopolitical structure remains, and with it, so does the question. Where do we go from here? The issues Lebanon faces today is the lack of a common memory, the lack of a common Lebanese identity, and a system based on sectarianism that reproduces sectarianism. So what do we do? Shall we create a history we can all agree on? Create a common Lebanese identity? Change the system?
2: So I think Lebanon, I mean, from a sociological perspective, what it's sort of like a chicken and an egg question, what should be done first? need to get rid of sectarian affiliations among people in order to change the system or do you need to first change the system for people to get rid of their sectarian affiliations I'm not sure it's a question of the old generation dying out, because as it happens and, and has happened over almost 100 years, power is passed on within the parties and within the movement. So you now have Taimur Jumblat instead of Walid Jumblat and so on. So it's not so much a generational question as a structural one. It's about changing, as you say, education. It's about changing the economic dependency. I mean, there's a structure of dependency whereby lower middle class are, are very economically dependent still on their sectarian leaders, on their parties, on their movements. And therefore, if, if that pattern of dependence is to change, uh, and then it's a question of changing the political economy and not just changing perceptions, not just uh, educating differently.
1: There is a lack of a strong sense of a public and a public good and a public interest. Now, notions of the public good and the public interest are always going to be contested. But in Lebanon, it's very problematic because there's no real even agreement that there is a, is a, such a thing as a public. Well, so I think for a lot of people in Lebanon and for people in the anti-sectarian movement, they want to see a more robust sense of the public than is possible with a sectarian system. With a sectarian system, you've got a very fragmented public where it's difficult to even mobilize people to even start thinking about a common good, even if the common good remains a very contested topic. But yeah, I mean, the, the poor governance, it, it's stemming partly from a sectarian system that's based a lot on patronage that you know many would look at that patronage and, and call it corruption. you know, there's graft and groups basically distributing resources by community rather than kind of toward a larger, you know sort of improving national infrastructure. But it could be that as the state really loses legitimacy, as people start really mobilizing and getting angry about these kinds of things, you know it might it might start to create, a common identity, or at least a common identity within Beirut as Beirutis. And that becomes important for people to to, to mobilize and to kind of claim a common identity in order to make demands on the state and to, to let the state know that they're not going to tolerate the, the system as it is um, and to demand real improvements in their lives. That might come about, you know, that might evolve despite the sectarian system. And I do think that, you know, these changes are often generational and that a lot of young people that I've met, they traveled abroad, they've been influenced by different ways of thinking, they're connected to the world in different ways. They're coming from a very different perspective. They've got a very different understanding of what's normal. <laughs> so it's it's hard to imagine that the system is going to be able to kind of endlessly reproduce itself. Those younger people are going to start putting pressure on the system they're not going to tolerate it going forward i think things are a mess right now i don't see how you get out of the mess but by the same token things do change you know people's way of thinking changes their attitudes change
0: even now as millions of protesters gather in the streets of lebanon calling for an end to the regime we stand unsure of what is to come the lebanese must know but another sectarian system will be little more than a chameleon. You'll have a newer Jamblat, a newer Basile, a newer own, each holding a paper umbrella for his sect, for his party. A new day and a new party flag to hold on to. So as we stand in the streets of Beirut today, all uniting under the cedar, we wait. We wait until the civil war generation has died out. We wait, we educate... We create a belief in the common good so people no longer vote based on their sector, they vote based on their politics. Will it happen? I don't think so. July witnessed new sectarian strife in Mount Lebanon. Marriage between people of different religious sectors is still illegal. We refer to each other as the Christians, the Sunnis, the Druze, the Shia. So will it happen? I don't know. So for now, we dance and we wait wait and in the meantime we remember we remember so as not to repeat tanze